0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think.
1: I chose the subject of this talk... um, I think it's very appropriate considering the fact that we've been reading the book of Revelation at Mass quite a bit The book of Revelation is the most complete statement about the end that we have in the scriptural canon and It's also a text that in reading this uh, during this first part of Advent can prepare ourselves for the second coming the coming of Christ in time At the end of time. So, I thought that this would be a very appropriate book uh, to to speak about um, in relation to this, the the retreat theme. Um, And no doubt, uh, you've maybe, if you've been to Mass in the past couple weeks and during daily Mass, uh, you've noticed that this book isn't normal. It's weird. Okay, so we have beasts running around coming out of the sea. We have different kinds of insects assailing people. There are little locusts, but these aren't any ordinary locusts. These are locusts with breastplates of mail, and they have helmets and vicious teeth that sting like scorpions. We have a whole bunch of different dragons that are sweeping stars out of the sky, etc., etc., etc. And if anybody... Would read this book they would be asking what the heck if they didn't already know that it was scripture It would be difficult to make sense of what's going on with this book So what I want to do at the outset is talk a little bit about Catholic interpretation of the Bible how Catholics are asked to read the Bible and how we can fruitfully approach such a seemingly strange book in order to glean spiritual fruit from it. It depends heavily upon our approach as a Catholic church to the scripture. In, I hope to in the first part of this uh, talk to share with you just a few thoughts and insights about this uh, Catholic approach as I'll call it to reading the scripture before then turning to the book of Revelation itself to consider what it has to tell us about the end, about the end of the world most particularly. Okay, so we have, uh, you might have heard of this uh, Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council. This is one of the most recent magisterial teachings that the church puts before us. There is a document called Dei Verbum, the Word of God. And it's in the Word of God, this document, that we are taught about, particularly Scripture, sacred Scripture. The first point that I want to make about this document, though, is that it clearly lays out that Scripture, the the Bible that we read, is not coterminous with the Word of God. The Word of God is bigger. It is broader. It is greater than the Bible. We are not a religion of the book, as Catholics, meaning we can't simply go to a book, even if it is the Bible, to learn absolutely everything that we need to know about the faith. The Word of God subsists in the Catholic Church, but it is bigger than this one book. And so this document begins by saying this. In his goodness and wisdom, God chose to reveal himself and to make known to us the hidden purpose of his will. And it continues that through divine revelation, God chose to show forth and communicate himself and the eternal decisions of his will regarding the salvation of humankind. That is, he chose to share with humans those things which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. So what it's talking about is the fact that God chose in time to reveal himself to mere, puny, mortal human beings who are finite. Okay, And when a human being has an experience of God, that human being, he or she, has the option of either keeping that to himself or herself or handing it on. And how do we hand on a revelation, an experience where God reveals himself to you? How do you hand that on? The church teaches us that there are two ways. First of all, by writing it down, the written message of salvation is what we call scripture. But the second way is the preaching or the tradition, the handing on by word of mouth by preaching, by teaching, this is also the way that revelation gets handed on. So Christ, the fullness of revelation, when he came to be man, when he was incarnate, he called men after himself to follow him, to impart to them this teaching. And the first way that revelation was handed on is through the apostolic preaching. It is through a personal contact with their fellow men and women that they hand on the revelation that they have received. And eventually, this becomes a matter of writing it down, but also writing it down and handing it on in the context of the church so that we have the surety that this writing effectively is the inspired communication, the inspired revelation, the inspired word of God handed on in the life of the church. My point here is just to say that this isn't the same thing as walking down to Barnes and Noble, if such a thing still existed at this point in time. It's not just a matter of walking down to Barnes & Noble and going to the religion section and pulling off a Bible from the shelf and saying, there, I have the word of God. This is our experience. It's very different in the ancient world. To be able to receive the written message of salvation required a community. It required being within the church because only through the church was this word effectively handed on, and it's because The work of the Holy Spirit is overseeing this throughout the centuries. So this is the context in which we receive the word of God, the Bible, the scripture. This is how we receive that written message, that written word of revelation that we call the scripture. So the second point that I want to make about this scripture is that it is in fact inspired. So, when Dave Verbum speaks about this, de Verbum speaks about this inspiration as a matter of the authorship of God. So we read from the eleventh and the twelfth paragraphs. The books of the Bible are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we can say that they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. So God truly is the author of the books of scripture. But in the very next sentence, it also says, in composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities so that with him acting in them and through them, they as true authors consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. So we have God as the author of scripture, We have human beings as the authors of scripture there's dual authorship god is not the author in the same exact sense they're analogous senses they're related but distinct meanings of the word author god is author in the fullest sense in the first sense meaning that god is the origin god is the one who brings forth scripture most radically it expresses his mind, his will. It is his self-revelation. But it is also the case that human authors use their minds and their wills to write down things. And this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they are truly authors as well. We can understand the relationship if we draw on Thomistic philosophy a little bit. There's this principle in Thomistic philosophy called instrumental causality, that God can use a human being as an instrument. This is the idea. So to understand this, we can read from Aquinas, every instrument, when acting as an instrument, has two different effects, one that pertains to it according to its own nature, and another that pertains to it insofar as it is moved by the primary agent and that transcends its own nature. Okay, that's kind of a mouthful. Two senses in which an instrument can have a cause, one according to its, or in effect, one according to its own nature and one that transcends its own nature. I could break it down to a very basic level. If I decide that I want to have a steak dinner, I'm probably going to need a good steak knife, all right? What is a steak knife, make? What is what makes a good steak knife? It's sharp, it has the serrated teeth on the edge so you can cut off a good piece of meat, right? Those are natural qualities in the knife itself so that when I go to cut the steak, we can say that something in the knife itself has a natural effect of cutting something naturally about this knife about its nature affects the cutting of the steak but you can also see that there's something additional required the knife sitting on the table is not going to cut any steak it's not going to have any effect on the meat it requires an agent to be using this instrument and so this effect goes beyond the knife itself. It's a transcendent effect. It requires something additional. If I could take that image then and apply it to a human being, being inspired to write a book of scripture. When you write something, or I write something, I use English, I use these words, I try to communicate something, That is a part of, this is a way that I naturally communicate. I use words as a part of my nature, as a rational animal to communicate and signify things to other people. But these words that I might actually be signifying can also have a transcendent effect. This is the case with inspiration. The human author acting as an instrument has the effect of producing human words, but he also has the further transcendent effect of communicating the very word of God. So God can use human words to communicate his own message of salvation. Another example of this, there are certain times when during the year where I get commissioned to write things for the Catholic uh, register or for blogs or for different things in the course of a year. One time I was asked to write something about the Sunday readings, so I sat down, I worked through them, I looked up some Greek words, I came up with some ideas, and I wrote out a nice essay. Okay, that got published, great, didn't give it a further thought. I. F- figured my job was done there. I had communicated something about the scripture. But then about two or three months later, I was preaching a parish mission and someone came up to me and said, are you the priest who wrote this article? And I said, yes, I was. And this man was very touched. He was very uh, emotional. He, He had touched him very deeply. He was Uh, very happy that I had written this because it gave him a new perspective on the mercy of God and it helped him to take his faith more seriously and it really affected a a small but significant conversion in his life, okay? I never intended that to happen because I didn't know who this guy was. That was the first time that I met him. There is a transcendent effect at work though in that the Holy Spirit is overseeing this, taking these puny human words and using them to effect a real conversion in someone's mind and heart. That's a kind of analogy for how this human worded uh, Bible can actually work to communicate God's saving truth, can communicate revelation, all right? It's not that every human author understands all of the effects of everything that he writes when he's writing one of the parts of the Bible, but that it is the case that he's being used as an instrument, being elevated to be able to produce this transcendent effect in communicating God's message of truth. What does any of that matter? Well, it matters a great deal if we consider the following. That if God is truly the author of the scripture, and if God is using human beings as agent or as uh, instruments in his agential communication of his revelation, then there are two corollaries. There are two things that follow. First of all, scripture is inerrant. There is no error in scripture. That's a huge statement. What do we mean by that? It's not that every single thing in the Bible is factually, literally true, okay, in the sense that we can read it all at its face value and understand immediately what it means. I'm going to get into that a little bit more in a minute. But if we just sit with the fact that we have the reassurance that all of the books of Scripture with all of their parts teach solidly, faithfully, and without error God's saving truth, that is the first point because God is indeed the author of these books. But then secondly, secondly, it is the case that these books are written in a time-bound human idiom that these books are written in a particular language in a particular genre in a particular way they are meant to communicate in real genuine human language god saving truth that means that we have to study the genre we have to study the idiom. We have to study the way in which this historically bound book was composed and how it was meant to be handed on to people in 1000 BC, in 500 BC, in 70 AD. This is the work that we are tasked to do to interpret scripture properly. See, so we have to, in order to access the teaching that god wants us to know to access god's message of salvation we have to go through the human words to get to the divine word the word of god so what does this mean well this means that we can't take everything at face value all right i once uh, was talking to a niece of mine not too long ago she works at a store in a mall i asked her how work was She said, it was terrible. Right before the store closed, about a million people showed up and they all wanted to buy clothes at, at, you know, 7.45 and we close at eight. A million people showed up. Did she lie? Because, did she make a mistake because there were only 50 people that really actually showed up? No, because we have something in English called exaggeration. Hyperbole. In order to make a point, you exaggerate. In order for her to make an exaggerated point, to complain, to measure, or to relate her displeasure at having to stay at work late, she said a million people showed up. Okay, so that is an example of, very small example of how the language really works in ways that are not literal, that are not straightforward. So we have to pay attention to that. For the purposes of our talks, especially, and especially the book of Revelation, which as I began with, it's quite weird, okay? It's quite strange. If you try to read it in a straightforward, plain sense, you're not going to get very far. So we have to take account of the uh, the human aspects of the scripture as well as the fact that it is inerrant as it is a efficient communicator of divine truth. I say that this is particularly important for a book like Revelation and the anecdote that I would put forward here it involves a man from Houston. His name was Vernon Howell. No one? Okay. All right. So, Vernon Howell, he was a man from Houston who took charge of the Carmel Institute outside of Waco, Texas. He changed his name to David Koresh, David Cyrus the Great. Why did he do that? It's because he thought that he had come to the one and only true interpretation of Revelation, the book of Revelation. He said that six seals had been opened up in, by 1992, and that in 1993 it was his job to open up the seventh seal because he was the lamb that was slain, that was come to bring in the second coming of Jesus Christ. He was the one who was going to usher in the end time. He was so good at convincing people about this, by the way, he actually convinced someone with a PhD in biblical studies that his interpretation was correct. He got about 100 people to follow after him. They hunkered down in this compound, the Mount Carmel Institute outside of Waco, Texas, and that's when the ATF showed up because... They had also stockpiled a whole lot of automatic weapons. He wasn't a peaceful kind of lamb. He was more the war-faring kind of lamb. It ended in tragedy. It was a formative event for me personally. I watched this on the news. The ATF crashed in. The whole place burned down. A lot of innocent people died. This was not a good and happy event. It was not a very responsible use of scripture and it wasn't accurate. So interpreting scripture sometimes can become a rather dangerous affair, especially with the book of Revelation. As a 13 year old boy, I looked at this news story, I read about this and I thought, how in the world, how in the world did this guy get all of these people to follow him and then i thought how in the world would we know that this guy wasn't jesus christ i didn't really know much about the faith at that time i didn't read the bible very often but it made me wonder what if jesus did come how would we know it's not going to look like this guy this too highlights the importance of reading the Bible. A simple phrase from a gospel, you will not know the day or the hour that Christ's second coming will be like a flash of lightning in the sky going from one side to the other. It will not be something that you can plan out, that you can pinpoint, that you can point to. And it sure will not involve immoral activity and violence in this manner so that's all a way of entering into uh setting the stakes i I should say of why it's so important to understand the catholic principles of biblical interpretation before we even approach the book of revelation having said all of that it's now uh i would in this part of the talk like to speak a little bit about what the book of Revelation is and is not, okay? So the book of Revelation is not, it is not a step-by-step description of the end. It is not a panel-by-panel word painting of exactly what's going to happen at the end of time, okay? So there's not going to be little locusts with a bunch of armor stinging Romans and other people that are spewing out of the mountaintops, okay? That's not, that's probably not going to be one of the things that happens, okay? These are, again, symbolic aspects of the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation is a work of apocalyptic literature. This is a heavily symbolic narrative that depicts an angelic being, it's a genre, this is a whole genre of literature, wherein an angelic being depicts uh, how the world is going to end, and he, this angelic being shows it to a human person and interprets what it means. This includes both temporal and spatial aspects of the end of time and the end of the world. So in the ancient world, There were a bunch of these apocalypses that were written. They were quite similar to the book of Revelation. This was a whole genre of literature. These were written in order to criticize on the one hand, there were three purposes for these kinds of books. One was to criticize the empire. So first the Greek empire, then the Roman empire. They were also written to explain why the Jewish people were suffering, what they had done wrong, how they had come to this point, and how it was still a part of God's plan. And finally, they were written to give hope to faithful Jewish people that God will still save them, even if this happens at the end of time, even if this happens after they die. This was the kind of heavily symbolic resistance literature, its religious resistance to these empires that had taken over. So the other thing to notice then about this genre is that it employs a heavy degree of symbolism, both in the figures involved, so the beasts and all of the animals that are involved in these apocalypses, but then also in the time involved, The time span so in the book of Revelation for example we have the coming of Christ this rapture that happens seven years of tribulation and then the second coming of Christ where it will inaugurate a 1,000 year reign a kingdom of Christ on earth that will last for 1,000 years all of those time signatures are also symbolic they are not meant to be taken liter- literally, literally, excuse me. And that is a place where a lot of people get in trouble as well. You might've heard uh, of certain Christian groups, millennial, millenarianist groups that are very concerned about the rapture being taken up, all of these things. It's an over-literal reading of this book that produces these sorts of theologies. Okay. So how do we read this book then? We read it as an example of apocalyptic literature. This is again written in response to a crisis situation. Judea, that is the Jewish empire or the Jewish kingdom had been taken up into the Roman empire and they had to deal with these Roman overlords that were, in fact, quite oppressive, all right? So John decides, the author of the book of Revelation, decides to put together this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by drawing on one area of his knowledge, that is the Old Testament prophets, and one area of his experience of oppression, that is Roman propaganda, the Roman Empire, that's oppressing them. So the Old Testament prophets that are most influential are Joel, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And to some degree, perhaps Zechariah as well. These prophets speak about the day of the Lord. On that day, God will come. On that day, you will experience the mercy of God. On that day the Sun and the moon will be blotted out and you will experience darkness on that day locusts will appear and they will eat all of the crops these are the types of things that these prophets say on that day sometimes that day is imminent you get the sense that it's going to happen within the next month or so almost sometimes that day Seems like it will never come. It seems like it might be years off. But the point about that day is it's the day when God is going to visit and he's going to settle all accounts. He is going to punish the wicked. Quite often the wicked are the nations, the oppressors of Israel. But sometimes the wicked are people within Israel themselves, people who have gone away from following the law that day is quite important in the prophetic literature of israel as the day that's identified where god is going to come to judge all of his people and the entire world and it usually involves imagery of the natural world it involves the kind of darkness that would occur when the sun and the moon are blotted out. It involves the animal kingdom afflicting people, much like God used natural elements to afflict the Egyptians in the 10 plagues to bring them out of Egypt. So the prophets are using that to show how God is going to effect a new kind of exodus for his people. And all of that language is then taken up by John and used throughout his book. But he's not just using the language of the prophets. He's also interacting with Roman propaganda. So Roman propaganda, what am I talking about? Well, the Romans thought a lot of themselves. Emperors are kind of megalomaniac. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they're not really humble people. So let's take, for example, what is it, Octavius, okay, Octavius Caesar, right? He decided to change his name to Augustus. Augustus, reverend, worshipfulness. This is what he wanted people to do. He wanted people to worship him, to revere him. It's the same root that you would use for revering or worshiping a god or a goddess. He also put his likeness right there next to the goddess Artemis. He put his likeness next to the gods and goddesses in order to show that he himself was semi-divine. There was another thing that happened when he defeated Mark Antony in 9 B.C., There was a contest to see how people could honor him the best. And the winners decided that they were going to reorganize the calendar so that the first day of the year, New Year's Day, is not going to be January 1st anymore. It's going to be Augustus' birthday. Augustus, so important that his birthday is the first day of the year. They also started to develop cults around the emperor. So the emperor would give his permission, and Augustus did this, for people to build up shrines that would put statues of the emperor next to statues of the gods. This happened in certain different places. We know from the archeological discoveries that one great one was in Aphrodisias in Turkey. And this giant, giant memorial to Augustus Caesar would have been 200 yards long and three stories high, filled with statues. It showed how Augustus had, in fact, conquered all these different peoples. It showed him striding across the sea and the land, conquering the whole world. And it also showed him as a kind of controller of the cosmos augustus was being put forward as someone who controlled and really imported order on not only the human world but also on the cosmos itself there was also these things you might have i don't know Watched this is already getting kind of old now. 22 years, I suppose. I think his Gladiator is already 22 years old. But anyway, Russell Crowe, heck of an actor, really, really put together a fine performance in the Gladiator. You might have seen movies depicting these gladiatorial games. Okay, so this was also a way in which the emperor was honored. But there were also games that involved animals. They were called, um, I forget what they're called now, venerationis or something like that. Anyway, they would take animals, they would send their armies to the far reaches of the empire, Africa, the Middle East, to get animals to bring them to Rome and to make them fight each other in the Colosseum. They would put on organized hunts in the Colosseum where they put a leopard in there maybe an elephant and they would show the crowds in Rome this animal hunt right there in the Colosseum. This wasn't just for some kind of idle entertainment though. It was to show, to demonstrate the control that Rome had over the entire world and that the emperor had over the entire world. This was an empire that was so rich and so powerful, it could bring a lion from Africa to put it in front of you, to have a hunt for your entertainment, but also to demonstrate symbolically the control that we have over the world and over mankind. This was a not simply a matter of idle entertainment, but it was in fact a quasi-religious kind of experience. They would even bring in priests from the different shrines and cults to bless this and also to put on a kind of mythical play with some of these animals as they were being hunted the point of all of this is that this is the world in which john lives and it's this world that he is reacting to partly in the book of revelation his message in the book of revelation could be if we really wanted to boil it down who really is god who really controls the cosmos who do you believe really is in charge and who really has the power this vision systematically dismantles the roman empire uses the animal world against the evil ones and also destroys the parts of the world that the Roman Empire had conquered and used to expand its power and its wealth, its control over the whole world. Excuse me. So one of the key passages that we can look at is Revelation 13. This is the place where we learn that John has his bullseye set on the Roman Empire. When I I saw a beast come up out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb's, but spoke like a dragon. Wisdom is needed here. One who understands can calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number that stands for a person. His number is 666. So this is a famous line. I think a lot of people recognize it from the book of Revelation. But what John is doing here is he's using an ancient Jewish form of numerology called gematria and what this does is it assigns a numerical value to every letter in the alphabet every letter in the alphabet has a numerical value so if you take caesar nero's name and transliterate it into greek then uh, you would take this name and it, its value would come to six hundred and sixty-six if you use this technique of Hebrew numerology. So it's widely regarded that this mark of the beast, this number of the beast, is in fact referring to Nero. Secondly, the um, the excuse me. Secondly, the the beast in the book of Revelation is depicted as dying and then coming back to life after being Mortally wounded there were these myths about Nero that this in fact had happened with him that he had come back to life So it seems rather clear that this is the Emperor One of the emperors that John has in mind and they were contemporaries Nero is one of the chief persecutors of the church during John's lifetime There are also in Revelation 6 another famous passage the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. Each one comes forth in its turn, and each one holds an object. The first horseman holds a bow and arrow, which is the symbol of Artemis, the god who is quite important in Roman belief. The second one holds a giant sword. This giant sword was a symbol of the Pax Romana. They would always speak about Pax Romana as a a kind of peace that came through war, through the sword. So this seems to be a symbolic representation of that. And finally, the scales of the third horseman, the justice and order that was brought about by the emperor, these are all Echoes of the Empire that John is critiquing and is saying is about to end Finally in the description of Babylon in chapter 18 Babylon the great is fallen We have this woman on the waters who is meant to be a personification of the city the city that has gotten so powerful and so wealthy as Because she has done this trade with all of the nations over the mediterranean sea okay so it lists in this giant list of all of the types of things that came through babylon that increased her wealth and at the end it describes the merchants weeping for her there are merchants over the land and merchants over the sea who weep for this woman babylon this city babylon that has fallen It's agreed that this Babylon is in fact Rome. Again, that Rome is this empire that has grown rich or with this economic stranglehold over the whole world that involves the Mediterranean Sea. So these are all clues that John has the Romans in mind when he's writing this. But he also has in mind their destruction. So systematically he goes through all of these different things and shows how they are going to be destroyed from the beast itself to the very sea the very sea is going to be no more it is going to be conquered it is going to come to nothing so i'd like to turn in the final part of this talk to the main point of revelation which is the end the end of the world this occurs the end of the world in chapters 19 and following the first 19 chapters have been concerned with depicting the punishment that still happens in time the afflictions that still happen in time by being intertwined with the roman empire it calls people forward to extricate themselves from any involvement with the roman empire to not accept the mark of the beast to not have anything to do with rome and then That is a way of saying that you need to prepare yourselves for the end, which comes here in chapters 19 to 22. The first thing that happens that inaugurates the end is, well, actually two great battles. The first battle is narrated in chapter 19. The beast and his army are destroyed by an angelic army and the birds of heaven gorge themselves on all flesh. It's quite gory. It's uh, something that you could easily make a nice uh, action movie out of. But what happens in this battle is all the temporal powers are destroyed. So not just Rome, but all temporal powers, all empires are destroyed completely, subdued. Then in chapter 20, there is a second battle. And this battle is a cosmic battle. This is a battle between Michael, the angels, and devil, Satan. Okay, so Satan is destroyed in the second battle. Satan dies. The ancient serpent dies in the second battle. It's a symbolic way then of describing how God will definitively destroy all evil and remove all chaos from the world. It says that Satan will be released from his prison at this point in time, at the beginning of this battle, and that he will invade the breadth of the earth. He will surround the camp of the holy ones, but then fire will come down from heaven and consume him. The devil who had led all people astray was thrown into the pool of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet also were. They are tormented there day and night forever and ever. So that is the definitive conclusion of the cosmic battle. And then what comes next is the new heavens and the new earth coming down. In chapter 20 and 21, we see this is a chapter, excuse me, chapter 20 verse 11. John sees a white throne and the one who is sitting on it. The earth and the sky flee from his presence and there is no place for them. He sees the dead, the great and the lowly, standing before the throne and the scrolls are opened. There is a book of life. The dead are judged according to their deeds by what this was written in the scrolls. Then death and Hades were thrown into the pool of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the pool of fire. So this is where we see the resurrection of the dead at the end. First, you have the cosmic battle that destroys satan the ancient serpent the devil then the resurrection of the dead meaning that the dead are brought before god that they are there is a judgment but that death itself is personified as something that is killed and thrown into the pool of fire along with satan so the the purpose of this is to say that death is defeated, not just the devil, not just Satan, the ancient serpent, but death itself is defeated and will no longer have a place in existence going forward. There is no more death. Finally, then, we see the new heavens and the new earth at the beginning of chapter 21. In verse 1, we see, we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Why no sea? Well, part of this has to do with the fact that it's a symbol of the Roman oppression and authority. So John has no place for this in his utopic world of the future. But it's also something about the ancient Jewish belief that the sea was associated with chaos with sin and with death, with the abyss, with something that is opposite of God's goodness and order and his creative wonder. So this is a way of saying that there is going to be no more evil in the physical world, in the new heaven and the new earth. But we can also notice here that the new heavens, or the the former earth and the, the former heaven simply pass away. There is no grand description or narrative about what happened to them. We simply hear that they pass away. Normally, we think about the book of Revelation as a complicated narrative about how the world is going to be destroyed, but that's not really what's going on here. It's simply saying that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth without the kinds of things that we associate with evil, sin, death, pain, suffering, chaos. All of these things are going to be completely annihilated. They're not going to have a place in the new world to come. We get a glimpse of what this, uh, perhaps what this might look like in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. Here, Uh, Peter actually talks about a common belief in the ancient world that the world would end through fire, through a a kind of final conflagration, that every element will be dissolved in fire before then being recreated. If we think about the sun becoming a red giant and eventually swallowing up the earth, uh, I'm not really uh, big on the science, but uh, I think that's that's a, that's a thing, right? Like in a few hundred million years? Okay, anyway, so maybe he's right. Maybe the world will end with a giant conflagration. But that's not John's point in the book of Revelation. It's really to say that we are going to be able to live with God in peace. And this is the meaning of what's called the heavenly Jerusalem. So the heavenly Jerusalem in verses 3 to 4. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. There's an imminent relationship with God that is going to be possible because this new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven, and God is going to invite all peoples to live with him in this heavenly Jerusalem. This is a heavily symbolic section of Revelation. If we were to conceptualize what this new Jerusalem would look like, it would be a giant cube. It would be a like, I think it's uh, 144 miles high, 144 miles across. So it's like this really big cube that's made out of precious stones. And in the middle of it, there's a river of life and they're a tree of life. And these are beside the throne of God who sits right in the middle, inviting everybody to live around him. It's, again, not literal. It's meant to be a symbol of the fact that God's plan to live with his people is no longer going to be frustrated. And that in the midst of this relationship, in the, God's, the very fact of God's presence to his people, they will have eternal life. Eternal life is a matter of being in relationship with God, which is symbolized by this river coming forth from the throne and this tree of life that gives its fruit for all people 12 months a year for their nourishment, for their sustenance. This is all a way of saying that there is something that is going to be familiar about this new heavens and the new earth this new heavenly jerusalem there there are points of continuity space and time but there's also something that is going to be fantastically different we're not going to be able to recognize this as a simple continuation of the heavens and the earth that we know right now. There is going to be an end to everything that we know, that we see, that we experience. But there is also going to be a continuation in a new transformed reality. And that's the key word, that it is changed, not ended. It is transformed into a new Reality whereby we can indeed live with God in peace, where God will, as Revelation tells us, wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain and suffering or death. We will be able to live in God's presence, in true and complete happiness, and that will never end, it will never even be diminished. This is what John's vision is truly about at its core. It's what he wants us to know in every age, that this possibility exists, this reality will come to pass, where we see God face-to-face, live in his city, in his presence, and experience true happiness for eternity. Okay, so that's, that's all I got for this evening.